Well, this morning we continue the series entitled A Consideration of Children, Church Membership, and the Ordinances. And it is my plan that we will uh, continue this next week, December 17th, and the following week on December 24th. Yes, God willing, we'll be meeting for our Sunday school on Christmas Eve, December the 24th. Uh, And along the way, if you have any particular questions about something that has been said or taught on or any particular questions, feel free to to ask or to email those uh, to me, um, and I'll be happy to seek to try to integrate an answer to that question either into our Sunday school lessons or answer that directly. So far, we've considered an important hermeneutical principle, namely, interpret the historical narratives by the didactic. And we have to be careful that when we're interpreting historical narrative, we need to make sure that we interpret them in light of the didactic teaching portions of Scripture. And so when we read something in the book of Acts, we need to consider whether it is prescriptive, that is something that is required of believers and of the church, and therefore binding upon us, or descriptive of what was happening during those formative days of the church. We do not believe that spontaneous or immediate baptisms upon one's profession of faith is required based upon what we read in the book of Acts, those formative days of the early church, during which time the conversions of some we have recorded in Acts were accompanied by extraordinary and even miraculous events. Instead, we believe that the various didactic portions of Scripture regarding pastors, their role in the local church, their shepherding of the flock, protecting the flock, overseeing the ordinances, uh, the didactic portions of Scripture regarding the practice of the ordinances, the fruit of saving faith, and so on, would caution us against spontaneous or immediate baptisms not just in relationship to children, but to anyone. And therefore, your pastors believe that both examination of a person's profession and some measure of observation of a person's life is in order so that we might discern his or her profession. We believe that would be wise. Uh, Baptism, apart from examination, is not wise or biblical. Additionally, we've pointed out that There are no explicit accounts of children being baptized. There are no explicit accounts of children being added to the number of the local church in the book of Acts or anywhere else in the New Testament. And that's very important. What is explicitly described by Luke in the book of Acts is that adult men and women were baptized and adult men and women were added to the number of the church, that is, identified as members of the visible church. And we've seen that in Acts 5, verse 14, when it says, And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of, and it identifies them, men and women, were constantly added to their number. And the words used there for men and women are not just words for male and female of any age, but of adult men and women. And so there were adult men and women being added to their number, identifying with the visible church. Acts 8 verse 12 says that when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Christ Jesus, they were being baptized. And then Luke identifies them explicitly, clearly, men and women alike. So the baptism of children is simply not explicitly found in the book of Acts, nor anywhere else in the New Testament. And this is conspicuous. It must shape our conclusions regarding this subject of children, church membership, and the ordinances. And this is part of what shapes our beliefs and practice in this area as pastors and as a church. Then last week I sought to demonstrate that there is a clear and biblical relationship between baptism, church membership, and the Lord's table. This is very important to understand. 
Those three things are related in Scripture. Baptism, church membership, and the Lord's table. These three things are related and cannot be separated. In other words, you can't participate in one and refuse the other, or at least not and be biblical, for they are related in Scripture. And there is an order to them, a correct biblical order. Baptism first, and in conjunction with that and tied to that is church membership being identified with the visible church with its privileges and responsibilities. Baptism, church membership, in that order, tied together, and the Lord's table. And so there's an order to them. And so last time I briefly demonstrated from didactic portions of Scripture that, there, that the three are related and that there is an order to them. And I won't go into detail again, but just to summarize by way of statements. Baptism pictures certain gospel truths. And among other things, the person being baptized is, uh, I like the phrase that I've heard someone use, going public, so to speak, publicly confessing that he or she has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, the person is baptized into the name of the true and living God, the triune God revealed in Scripture, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so the name is very important. Baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Among other things, baptism pictures our union with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. Romans 6 Verses 3 and 4 speak of the spiritual realities. We're baptized into Christ, and water baptism signifies and symbolizes that. And those who are baptized into Christ are also baptized into His body, that is, the church. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13 says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. So when we're baptized into Christ spiritually, we are baptized into the one body of Christ. So no one is baptized into Christ, united with Christ spiritually speaking, without being baptized into the one body, the church. For there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Ephesians 4, verses 4 and 5. So baptism also signifies that those who are in Christ, who have been immersed into Christ, united with Christ, are also baptized into, united with, the body of Christ. You can't be baptized into Christ without being baptized into His church. Therefore, water baptism, signifying our union with Christ, being baptized into Christ, and visibly signifying that truth, also signifies that we are baptized into the body of Christ. And so in baptism, the believer not only goes public, so to speak, with his identification with Christ, but also in his identification with Christ's church. And in particular, the visible local expression of the church. And then a baptized believer identified with and associated with the visible church added to the number of those identified with Christ and with one another, submitting ourselves to one another in a local church, we then partake regularly in the ongoing ordinance of the table of the Lord, or communion. And so speaking of the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20, it says, Therefore, when you meet together, the body gathering, assembling together, the visible church, now the ongoing regular observance of the Lord's table, takes place. So there's an order to all that. The gospel is preached and heard. A person believes. Then 
The believers baptize. The baptized person is not baptized in isolation or privately. He's not baptized by himself. He's baptized publicly and into the local church. He submits to the local church with its elders and what the Bible calls fellowship with certain privileges and responsibilities. And one of those privileges is coming to the table of the Lord to regularly remember Christ's death in the truths of the gospel until Christ returns. Now, those are didactic passages and teaching of Scripture regarding those three things. But now we see that described in the book of Acts because that is the norm. That is what is to take place. And so I gave you the example of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, Peter Preach, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And it says in Acts 2.41, So then those who had received His word, they heard the general call, they were born of the Spirit, they believed on Christ, they received His word. It says they were baptized. So there's the order. They hear the word, the gospel, they believe, they're baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So you see that they're not just baptized into Christ, they're baptized into the church, spiritually speaking, and they identify with the local church. They're added to the number of the church. So baptism is not just a public profession of one's faith in Christ, but it's entrance into the visible church with all of its privileges and responsibilities. And then what are we to do together? Well, Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, believe a reference there to the Lord's table, and to prayer. So what we have described there in Acts is now taught in the didactic portions of Scripture. That is not just descriptive, that is indeed prescriptive of the order of those things, baptism, church membership, and then the table of the Lord. So I said, baptism is ordinarily bound to joining a local church. And I said ordinarily because there could be some exceptions on the missionary frontier before there's an organized church, but they're now believers. Could they be baptized before they're baptized into a set-in-order church, to use the language of Titus 1.5, where they're Already elders know there's just a church planner, but they're not elders. It's not structured yet because the church is being birthed. So there could be an exception. But listen, that's the exception, not the rule. Baptism is ordinarily bound to a local church, identification with a local church. <clears throat> and the Lord's table, I said, is tied to the fellowship of that local church made up of baptized believers. And so these three things must not be gotten out of order or disassociated. There should not be members of a church who are not baptized. There should not be those who partake in the Lord's table but are not baptized. There should not be those who partake in the Lord's table who are not united with and submitting to that local assembly or to some local assembly. That's why we fence the table in that way. If you're visiting with us, you find yourself here but you're a member in good standing of a gospel-preaching church, so you've been baptized as a believer, you're a member of another gospel-preaching church, then we open the table to those who meet those qualifications. And then I said the ordinances are church ordinances. That is, they are of and related to the local church, along with its pastors who oversee souls and practice and the practice of the ordinances of the church. They're not individual ordinances. That is so important. Not to be thinking about the ordinances of the Lord Jesus Christ as given to the individual. It's given to the church. Now, the individual benefits from, that, from those ordinances, but don't think of it as simply an individual ordinance. You don't baptize yourself. There's the involvement of someone pastors who oversee those ordinances in the local church who baptize you. <clears throat> the church, their church ordinances, not family ordinances. That's very important. And so I ask the question, who determines who should be baptized? The church, through its pastors, 
with a process that is in place that ties membership and baptism together. Uh, An individual doesn't decide it. Parents don't decide it. Certainly not a child. And so it's not a family ordinance. It's a church ordinance. It's not a parachurch ordinance given to seminaries or Bible colleges or, or youth camps or whatever you might else there is. That, that, that's not where these ordinances belong. They're to come alongside the church. Para means alongside of the church to aid it in some way to do various ministries. But the ordinances are not given to parachurch organizations. And so I said, those who baptize children or are in favor of baptizing children often do not associate all three of those or apply all three of the children. Children are sometimes baptized but not received as members. That's not biblical. Or children are allowed to come to the table of the Lord while they're not baptized. That's not biblical. And so in many churches, there is a disassociation of the three or they're gotten out of order. And so it's very important if we're going to think rightly about this, just in general, but then in relationship to children, that we understand the association, the relationship between those three and the order of them. Now, some questions that I began to ask last time were questions like these. Is there sufficient maturity when we talk about children to understand the ordinances? First of all, we might even say the gospel. That's important. But then the ordinances to understand church membership, the responsibilities. Can he or she carry out the responsibilities of church membership? Is the person of sufficient maturity that he or she is ready for that? In the matter of an unrepentant believer in Matthew 18, 15 to 17, the situation may get to a point where Jesus said, tell it to the church. Is the person of sufficient maturity to participate in a matter of church discipline? That is a part of the responsibility. So some might say, well, no, children aren't. We want them to have certain privileges, come to the table of the Lord, be baptized, but not responsibilities. But you don't see in the Bible this disassociation of those things. And so I ended last time by saying this. Your pastors believe that there must be a measure of maturity. We might even say adulthood in a person in order to understand and partake of such responsibilities. Children lack that maturity. The issue is not, very important, the issue is not whether children can be saved. They can. God does save children. So this isn't primarily an issue of soteriology, but of ecclesiology. And that's important to understand. So again, your pastors believe that there must be a measure of maturity in a person in order to understand the ordinances, partake in the biblical responsibilities of church membership. So this morning, let me ask the question, what does the Bible say then about children? It's not silent in that regard. Now, let me make some statements and then demonstrate them from Scripture. And one resource that I found that's helpful on this that I came across years ago was a booklet called Your Child's Profession of Faith by Dennis Gunderson. It has since been reprinted and looks like this, I think, is the latest. By the way, this guy right here, he went to Bible college when I was in seminary. He was on campus. I actually know his name. Like, what? I know him. I don't know how he got his picture on this book. But anyway, (laughs) that's beside the point. Um, It's called Your Child's Profession of Faith. And very helpful material. And some of the things I'm going to share with you Um, are from this book, uh, but it's not unique to this book. You you hear it among many who have wrestled with this issue as well. So what does the Bible say about children? The Bible would say this, first statement, children are intellectually immature. Children are intellectually immature. Now, we live in a day in which people don't like to hear that. Um, Children even young children are giving, given responsibilities for decisions that are not to be made by children. Today, children can decide 
what gender they are assigned to and to undergo treatment. Children are given the decision whether to have certain procedures done or not, even without the knowledge of their parents. And so even some of this has kind of crept into our thinking. We have to be careful. It's not a put down of children. It's just a fact that children are intellectually immature. Parents, we know this, right? If they were not, then we wouldn't need to be training them up in various ways and teaching them. Dennis Gunderson says this, a child's thinking is underdeveloped or undeveloped and simple. And when a person is immature, for whatever reason, it should render us a little cautious in receiving his expression of commitment to concerning, uh, concerning almost anything, including a commitment to Christ. Does this mean children cannot be saved? No. It means that reluctance to take a child's commitment at face value is understandable. Now, where is this in the Bible? Let me begin with this verse. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11. Now, the subject of 1 Corinthians 13 is love, but a statement that the Apostle Paul makes is this. 1 Corinthians 13, 11. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. So while 1 Corinthians chapter 13 addresses the subject of love, that doesn't change the fact that this is true. This is a true statement about the difference between children and adults. A child speaks less maturely, thinks less maturely, reasons less maturely. This is a simple fact. Children are intellectually immature. In 1 Corinthians 14 verse 20, it says this, Brethren, do not be like children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. So here, using children as an illustration because of what's true about them, he says, don't be like children in your thinking. Children by nature are short-sighted. They don't think much about things beyond that moment or the day. We don't ask children questions about their future and expect that they will have the maturity to think wisely, clearly, in order to plan that far ahead. Uh, we ask children, what do you want to be when you grow up? And how they answer that question is often not with maturity and insight, at least not the maturity and insight they will have when they grow up. They don't know enough about themselves to answer that question, to weigh the options, to make informed decisions. They're children in their thinking. But as they grow mature, they can answer that question better. And yet faith in Christ requires a measure of intellectual maturity and understanding that they won't, that, that they will, or, or excuse me, faith in Christ requires a measure of intellectual maturity and understanding that they don't have yet, but they will as they grow mature. Faith in Christ requires a measure of intellectual maturity and understanding. Who is God? Is he triune? One God in three persons? What does that mean? Uh, one of the things I do in new member class is we talk about three concentric circles in regard to doctrine. And the, the smaller circle is those essential, the inner circle, those first order doctrinal issues, primary doctrinal issues that are essential for someone to believe in order to be, be a Christian. So far, I've, I've never heard someone uh, put the Trinity outside of that first circle. It is essential for biblical Christianity. But yet, begin to ask children questions about the doctrine of the Trinity, it's difficult for them to grasp. You go to the Sunday school class and things like this happen. I hear the stories of, of <clears throat> might be telling them that, that God is not a man like we are. And then you say Jesus is a man and they conclude that Jesus can't be God. 
Or they conclude that God does have a body because Jesus is God and he had a body. And they're wrestling with this whole idea of the, the nature of the Trinity and the incarnation. It takes intellectual maturity and understanding to understand that. Who is Jesus? What did he do to save sinners? What is propitiation? Substitutionary atonement. Grace versus works. We taught our children growing up, you're not saved by works. You can't be good enough for God. You're not saved because you are children of Christian parents. You're not saved because you hear these things and go to church. And yet, that was still their nature. To, to wrestle with that, it was difficult for them to understand. It's hard to understand my faith in Christ versus my parents' faith in Christ and distinguish between the two. The two. They're, they're intellectually immature. These things must be repeated over and over again. And then commitment to Christ and what it means to be a disciple of Christ. This takes understanding and maturity. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It takes maturity to understand that. You're telling and teaching your children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. But Jesus says, if you don't hate your father and mother, you can't come to me. This is hard for a child to grasp. Again, Dennis Gunderson said this of Luke 14, 26, and hating father and mother. Will a child easily think of following Christ in terms like these when Scripture repeatedly says to him that the major part of his duty at this time of life is to obey his parents and the Lord, to honor his father and mother. Most of a child's known sphere of obedience to God in early years is channeled through father and mother. Obey, obedience, he's speaking of to father and mother. So how is he supposed to apply this? I suggest it is very difficult, though not impossible, to apply this standard because of the inability of a child to comprehend the scope of such an adult choice. And then you're supposed to hate your own life, Jesus says. How can he hate his own life? He barely knows who he is yet. Any strong sense of personal identity is yet uninformed. How can we tell whether he is willing to forsake his own self? The self is still to a great degree in the formative stages, in the direction of his life so undecided. He is living in a world in which his important choices are made for him. And he has no need to think about such things. Now, he goes on to say, someone might eject, but object, but even though a child is not ready to marry or fight in a war, some of the other arguments that are made about the immaturity of children, God can still save him while young. Of course God can. I would hope no one denies that. I am not saying he cannot or will not, but since the New Testament describes discipleship in these terms, it would be very, a very difficult task uh, to apprise a child, to, to apprise if a child is truly saved. Readiness to fight, making a lifetime commitment, turning one's back on family and friends, these kinds, these things can only be manifested later in life. This kind of decisiveness and determination is rare in a child. That being so, why should we hurry to baptize or consider uh, with certainty that a child is saved when we can wait to see if in maturity a profession made proves itself to be sound and past reasonable doubt? So, the terms of discipleship. Children lack the intellectual maturity to even weigh those things. Decisions are being made for them. I heard someone say, um, children don't even decide often what they eat or drink, but yet we're, we're having them make decisions about following Christ and denying self and hating father and mother if it were to come to that and, and those kinds of things. But also consider the intellectual maturity required just to partake in the ordinances. Water baptism symbolizes one's union with Christ. Can a child understand the symbolism of the ordinance? We're not Catholic believing ex opere operato, meaning from the work itself, that somehow it's effective. No, what feeds the soul is an understanding of the gospel truths behind the symbols. Can a child understand the symbolism of one's union with Christ? We believe a person needs to be able to understand that. 
to partake in the ordinance. For the ordinance to be edifying, a person needs to understand it biblically. Children are often put into the waters of baptism with no real understanding or ability to really understand what God's gospel truths are being signified. And what about the Lord's table? 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 29, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself and in So doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. If he does not judge, that takes some intellectual maturity. If he does not judge the body rightly. Why would anyone put this upon a child when they haven't reached an intellectual maturity to understand what they must do at the table of the Lord? Do we want a child to eat and drink judgment to himself because we've not been patient for them to partake with understanding? So children are intellectually immature. Secondly, second statement, children are prone to changeableness and instability. Children are prone to impulsiveness. They are capricious. Characterized, that word means, by sudden Unpredictable changes in attitude and behavior. This is a characteristic of children. Ephesians 4 verse 14. When Paul is describing what the church is to be like, is to grow to spiritual maturity, he says, don't be like this. As a result, as we grow to maturity, we're no longer to be children. What are children characterized by? Tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. This characterizes children. They're prone to changeableness and instability. They're easily swayed. Easily swayed. They can be easily deceived by someone. So they're prone to changeableness and instability. Third statement, children are easily influenced and more prone to deception. Children are easily influenced and more prone to deception. That's why it says in Ephesians 4.14, as it describes children and not being like children, spiritually speaking, because they're prone to the trickery of men by craftiness and deceitful scheming. This is why they need parents. They need the godly influence of their parents to not only direct them, but to protect them from various dangers that they are naive to and do not yet understand the magnitude of. You do need to protect your children, don't you? You do guard them from deceivers and false teachers, don't you? Because of their general immaturity, they can be easily influenced by others. Their convictions and beliefs are not yet developed. They're not their own. They're not settled Often they're driven by a desire to please others. They're prone to people-pleasing, which can make them particularly susceptible to believing something or doing something just because someone else believes it or does it. They're particularly prone to peer pressure. This is why when, imagine the setting of a vacation Bible school in a church different from ours in which the goal is to get professions of faith from those children, and on the last day you have some sort of an assembly in which you preach the gospel, but then you, you want to solicit a response to that. And so you speak of the horrors of hell and the dangers of the wrath of God, all which are true spiritually. And you ask those children, do you want to spend eternity in hell? Of course they don't. And so you ask them to raise their hand with their eyes closed if they want to pray to receive Christ. And And one raises his hand, and another looks up, and his hand's raised, so he raises his hand. Another one says, I'll raise my hand. And they're following others. Maturity is seen when they have beliefs and convictions that they stand upon when others around them disagree. And children can be more easily deceived even about their own spiritual condition. So again, children are easily influenced and they're 
They're prone to deception. So they're intellectually immature. They're prone to changeableness and instability. They're easily influenced, prone to deception. And this is why children can't make certain decisions, even in society, until they're not granted that decision. It shouldn't be in many cases. Until they reach a certain age that, again, society believes you should be exhibiting maturity and signs of adulthood and making wise decisions. So given that these things are true about children, we do not believe that it's best or wise to baptize children, receive them as members in the body of Christ with all the responsibilities therein and have them partake in the table of the Lord. Now, let me reiterate this by having you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I just want to reiterate this with a couple of passages. Again, there's a lot more that could be said about this, but I think this suffices in helping you to understand the the maturity necessary for these things. Baptism, church membership, the Lord's table. That all go together and in a particular order. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 speaks of a situation in the church in which there's reported an immorality of a kind that Paul says doesn't even exist among the Gentiles. And someone has his father's wife. And he's committing this sin and must be removed from their midst. That's verse 2. They should mourn. They should be able to then judge this person in... This is a part of the responsibility of the church. We are to judge. The Apostle Paul says in verse 3 that he has already judged him who has committed this. And he speaks in this passage of making judgments regarding one's profession of faith and then removing him from their midst. Now that's not simply talking about physically removing them. That means they're no longer identified as members of the the body of Christ, the privileges of that are now removed from them. They cannot come to the table of the Lord. Hence, we call it excommunication. They don't come to communion. They're excommunicated. And so the church must call sin, sin. They must identify sin. They must make decisions and determinations and come to conclusions about those who continue in unrepentant sin. The church must judge And there must be maturity in order to do this. Would we call our children to do this? And you might say, no. But they shouldn't do that. We'll have a two-tiered membership. That's not in the Bible. This is why I've gone through and I've labored to show you the relationship and order of baptism, church membership, and the table of the Lord, and the responsibilities of church membership. So we don't say, well... For our children who are members, let's don't ask them to be involved in this kind of judgment. You don't find that in Scripture. Again, what you find is those who were added to their number, those who were baptized, were adult men and women of sufficient maturity that they could indeed partake in those things in the life of the church. And so we wouldn't ask our children to participate in those things. In fact, we would want to shield them from certain things at various ages. So you see, there needs to be a certain maturity of a person to be able to fulfill the responsibilities that God requires of baptized believers who come to the table of the Lord as a part of the visible church. Let me have you turn to another passage. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. And we'll look beginning in verse 19. Jesus' explanation of the parable of the soils. You remember the parable of the sower, the seed, or the soils, however you want to identify the parable. But Jesus explains it in this way, in Matthew 13, verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. Okay, someone who's just rejected it, they don't want it, they don't want to hear it, they haven't even professed faith. Verse 20, the one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, 
yet has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. Now listen to this phrase. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. So here's someone who their reception, what appears to be a reception of the word, even with joy, when affliction and persecution arises because of that word, they fall away. When does someone begin to have true affliction and persecution because of the word? Again, our, our, our young children are growing up in situations in which that, that test hasn't even come. Of course, you know, all of our children at young ages seem to immediately receive the word that we were teaching them regarding their soul and the things of the gospel. But it's when affliction comes and persecution because of the word that it can then bear out to be whether it was truly receiving or not the word of God. Verse 22, And the one on whom seed was sown among thorns, this is the man who hears the word and, notice what takes place in the next phrase, the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke, choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Children do not face these things. Children are rather carefree. Hopefully, parents, you're not burdening your young children with things of finances and difficulties you're having. Yes, you may in one sense. I'm not talking, yes, you pray about these things. You praise God for His provision. But, but they're not facing the worry of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth. They're not at that age yet. That's simply not where they are. When does a person begin to have these kinds of things in his life that he might demonstrate that his faith is genuine? When might affliction and persecution arise because of the word? We would argue at older ages. When now you as a parent are even beginning to give that teenager, let's say, more responsibilities, and they're coming into contact, and they profess faith in Christ, but now people are challenging that, and certain temptations in the world to now see how are they going to respond to that affliction and persecution, the, the pull of the world in various ways. When does a person begin to be tempted with the worry of the world? Our children are rightly sheltered from various worries of the world. And what about the deceitfulness of wealth? How many children are really deceived by wealth? Or are even thinking much about money and riches and having the tug on their souls? And what about other temptations that might lead a person astray or really test the genuineness of their faith? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Well, how many children instead who profess faith at very young ages, turn away from Christ and the gospel when they want a relationship with someone that doesn't believe what they believe. Now they're really beginning to see, is this genuine? Now when that young girl or that young man has someone interested in them and now they're drawn to them, but they're not Christians or they're not believing the same things, now you begin to see, have they really received the gospel and believed the gospel? Now they're beginning to see whether or not this profession, and you can discern more accurately whether it is indeed true possession of saving faith. When is a person of sufficient maturity to follow Christ when drawn to attraction to the opposite sex? When that happens, then you begin to see if that faith is genuine. So you may be asking the question, at what age does a person begin to mature in such a way so as to discern more clearly his or her profession of faith in Christ that he or she might be baptized, join the church with all the privileges and responsibilities, including coming circumspectly to the table of the Lord? Again, don't think first about age. First think about maturity. So that's what your pastors do. We don't think first about age so that we just set an age. Now, again, the world sets ages. Our government, the governing authorities have to do that. Here's a certain age that you can join the military. Here's a certain age that you can get you know, married without uh, you know, your parents signing off on it or this, that, and the other. They have to do that because they can't 
examine everyone as to maturity and readiness for that. So, so just as a funny thing, um, you know, Timothy and Hannah, my son and now daughter-in-law, got married at a young age. Well, according to certain laws, they can't even do rentals in North Carolina of certain types until they reach 25. Well, that seems a little silly when you're married, right? But they just have to set an age. Well, we don't just do that as a church because we can talk to people and we can get to know them. We see their lives. We don't have millions of people that we just have to set. Well, here's the age. So again, don't think first age, but maturity. However, we can speak generally about a time in a child's life when he or she is moving from childhood to adulthood, from childhood to maturity, when one's profession of faith is now being tested and bearing fruit as to its genuineness. Is that four years of age? Of course not. Is it 10 years of age? Your pastors would say, no. 16? 17, now we're beginning to talk about a time in which maturity is taking place. And it's even expected. We're expecting as parents our, our, our children of that age to begin to be showing signs of maturity and now moving not from just being children, but now they're, they're making more adult decisions. But even then, it's not the age itself but the maturity and the testing of one's faith. One 17-year-old might be more mature than another. One 18-year-old might be bearing fruit of faith and another is not. Therefore, we don't simply talk about age, although we understand that enters into the discussion somewhat. For there might be one 18-year-old that should be baptized and another that shouldn't. One 18-year-old, by way of example, might have just professed faith in Christ and there's been no time of examination or even observation of that profession. There still might be wisdom in watching and waiting, instruction and encouragement. However, another 18-year-old might have professed faith at age 13, has five years of testing of that faith, bearing fruit through those teenage years, and maybe would be ready to be baptized, join the church, and come to the table of the Lord. So we don't put an age on it, but we do say there needs to be some maturity of a child and demonstration of the fruit of faith in Christ. So generally, your pastors would say that somewhere in those mid-teens and up, one who has professed faith in Christ could be, not necessarily would be, but could be, but not necessarily could be. It's dependent upon the person, not the age. Could be ready for and even encouraged in those things. So, hopefully you understand as we're moving these things forward and you understand how important the, these steps are. We, we can't just take Acts and say, oh, Everyone who believed was immediately baptized, and that's what we must follow today. Therefore, even young children who profess faith in Christ must immediately be baptized, must immediately be, uh, join the church and partake in the Lord's table. No, we need to go to other considerations. What we do know from Acts is that adult men and women were added to their number. Adult men and women were baptized. So we're talking about, yes, adulthood in a sense, but when is that adulthood? We just don't say 18. See, there, there is this maturation that should take place in the life of a, a child in general, but especially as it pertains to this subject. But we want to be careful. This is why I began with saying, remember, your pastors are shepherds of souls and we are, we are to guard and protect the church in these matters. It's not good for children or the church to be hasty in baptizing them, having them join the church and partaking in the Lord's table. For how many young people have been baptized only to determine later that they weren't even believers or even understood the gospel? You've borne testimony to that by raising your hands, that, that many, if not most of you, 
were baptized before you were even saved because you professed but didn't possess saving faith. That does not do the church good nor the good of that soul. And how many times being hasty in these things has then that child come to an age in which now they're making decisions and they forsake faith in Christ and they must be publicly disciplined by the church. So again, we want to be careful. How many have been partakers in these things too hastily to the detriment of their souls? and even to the church. Many, I would say, even many among us. And so we move the consideration of these things a little further. And hopefully you're understanding, again, the, the reason why your pastors have come to certain conclusions and reasons why we're not just telling you, well, here's the age, and every child at this age who's professed faith in Christ, we say baptism, church membership, the Lord's table is open to them. No, it's maturity. When is that maturity? And that's a personal thing as we need to, as pastors, shepherd souls. So I'm going to talk about, probably not next week, but the week following. What we desire to do as pastors is we've been given, uh, blessed with so many young children in our church to then help shepherd the souls of those children, to come alongside you as parents and to get to know those children and and what they believe in their profession of faith, so that when that time of maturity comes, that that young man or young woman, along with their parents and pastors, all believe, yes, this is the time for you to undertake these things to the glory of God. So we've moved the consideration of these things a little further. Next week, in discerning these things, I believe it's important to consider some parental pitfalls, and so will, God willing, consider some of those things next week. Let's pray together. Father, in all these things, we thank you that, again, your word has not left us without direction and instruction regarding these things. And Lord, help us to be mature and wise ourselves in our understanding of Scripture and, and how it applies to these things. And Father, again, we pray, save our children. We pray, save them at young ages. And Father, help us to, as parents and even as a body of believers and as pastors, to, to nurture those who profess faith in Christ and bring them to a point in which, at a sufficient time of maturity as is appropriate, those young men and women can go public with that profession and identify with the church all the responsibilities and privileges and even at times liabilities of identifying with Christ and come to the table of the Lord examining ourselves and remembering His death on our behalf. Lord, give us wisdom. God, give us unity in these things. For Your namesake we pray. Amen.